everybody, and welcome to The Jay Martin Show. I'm Jesse Day, temporarily stepping in for Jay. And today's guest is a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University, a former senior economist with President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, and has served as an advisor to heads of state in many countries. It's Steve Hankey. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Great to be with you, Jesse. I want to start with a tweet you made recently where you said Danish renewable energy giant Orsted warns that supply chain problems at its U.S. East Coast wind farms may cost the company up to $2.1 billion. This is yet another example from Hanke's book of rules. There is no such thing as a green free lunch. Now, I think this scenario underpins a broader issue that we're seeing crop up with the energy transition, particularly in regards to wind energy, um, but across the spectrum of green energy as well. So talk to us about the challenges you're seeing there. And is this energy transition going to fall apart? Well, what's what's involved with the transition is, is a tremendous amount of government intervention this is this is not the free market at work at all there there are massive massive subsidies involved with the transition and and the problem is 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 a fundamental one and that is decisions about resource allocation and and financing and so forth are in the hands of politicians and bureaucrats who don't pay the cost of their mistakes. Now, now this is this is a- absolutely the, the most dangerous and stupid thing because the incentives just aren't there to make good decisions, to make a long story short. Now, if you're in the profit and loss system, in a free market system, for example, what happens with the profit and loss system? <laughs> We have accounts, and at the end of the year, if if the losses are there, some, somebody's head's going to roll, and and, uh, and and things will be sorted out and straightened out. It, the system, in short, doesn't reward failure as the current green transition does. The green transition really it doesn't penalize failure; it almost rewards failure. Now, in the profit and loss system, of course, that's not the case. Uh, ultimately, you you can't be serving customers at, at high cost and inefficient way in the private sector and racking up losses and stay in business very long. Eventually, it's a survival of the fittest kind of. But that that's not what's happening in this government sector. So, so what we end up with in the United States, for example. We've had two big pieces of legislation passed by the Biden administration, the Build Back Better piece of legislation and the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, both of those uh, are, are larded with subsidies all over the place. Every, everyone is getting subsidies. So the, the lobbyists are, are doing a, a land office business in Washington, D.C., because Everyone wants to, to grab a piece of the subsidy. And the only way you do that, you, you hire lobbyists and they, they lobby for you in Washington. And you, if you're successful in that endeavor, you will get a chunk of the change. 
get get a get a, a bite out of the hide of taxpayers because taxpayers pay for these subsidies. So as a result of that, though, uh, it does have budget implications. And in, in the United States, for example, it looks like the fiscal deficit might run in in the next twelve months up at nine to ten percent of GDP. Now that's a huge number. That, that's about 50% greater than the Congressional Budget Office is forecasting, number one. It's kind of close, actually, to what the IMF. The IMF said that the budget deficit would explode to 6 to 7%. I think it's going to be higher than that because there are additional costs that these subsidies are racking up. So... You, you said, will it, will it end in failure? Well, it, it certainly will end with a tremendous amount of waste, fraud, and abuse, Jesse. That's the, the bottom line. And, and taxpayers, of course, pay for this. So, so we, we, we're seeing kind of the calm before the storm right now because no, no one really even sees yet the explosion that's, going to, that's occurring right under our eyes in, in the government budget. And, and if you get up at nine to 10%, that, that's, that's off the charts. That's, that's, that's an unsustainable deficit level. And even in the United States, there are gonna be all kinds of negative consequences flowing from that. So that's why I say in Hankey's book of rules, you, you quoted, there's no such thing as a green free lunch. This, this is going to cost an arm and a leg, and ways fraud and abuse will be in the picture. And speaking of waste, fraud, and abuse, we're seeing seemingly endless aid being pumped into the Ukrainian war effort by the U.S., my home country of Canada, and many other Western nations, and it seems absurd. So who is paying for all of this? And why is the West so obsessed with throwing money at Ukraine, in your view? Well, yeah, this 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 works partly into this budget deficit thing, and 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 you you've really got four things going on that are exploding the the deficit. I said we've got the Build Back Better bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, with all these subsidies, these green subsidies, uh, and, and the subsidies. Who gets a subsidy? Well, that, that's a political thing. That, that's not an economic thing going on. And, and it's being made by decision makers and politicians who don't pay the cost of their mistakes. So it's a, it's a stupid system, basically. Now, we also have something that's happened. We had this big inflationary surge in the United States and ultimately the Federal Reserve had to increase interest rates to try to tamp the thing down. And, and that has increased the cost of servicing the government debt. So that's another kind of unexpected thing that's come into the picture. Now, the fourth thing is this Ukraine thing. And the Ukraine thing is just a, a never ending flow. Every week you pick up the paper, Jesse, and there's another 500 million or billion or you name it just a flood of money going into what is in fact it historically been one of the most corrupt countries in the world. The, the most corrupt country in Europe 
ranked by Transparency International as Russia, and number two is Ukraine. In my judgment, by the way, my, my own experience and observations, I would put Ukraine as one and, and Russia as two. <laughs> but but they're, they're both highly, highly corrupt. So you, you say, who's paying for this? Well, the American taxpayer pays. They're, they're, they're being taxed and, and having to pay for this war that is probably going to end up, I think, in a, in a never-ending Cold War of sorts, because Russia is not going to lose. Ru Russia sees, the, the and, and why this whole thing started, the provocation uh, came from the West, and, the, and, the, and there are various elements of this, but, but the Russians let the Americans know, and the West know, that the expansion of NATO into Ukraine was an existential threat. And, and th th this, this was very clear. It, 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 was, it wasn't a, uh, what, it, what, any, any diplomat could have picked up on this. So, so that was a message coming back that the West wanted Ukraine to enter NATO, open invitation, open door. The Russians said no. For us, this is an existential threat, and 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 ultimately, a, a, a war started. So, so here here we are in in the middle of a war. Uh, something the Russians take most seriously as an existential threat: this expansion of NATO into Ukraine and. As I say, I, I agree with Professor John Mersheimer at the University of Chicago. The, the Russians will not lose this. And, and, and what, what will happen, hopefully, sooner rather than later, there'll be some diplomatic negotiations and, 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 and things will settle down and, and be, shall we say, settled. But the settled will, will leave us in in kind of a, a quasi-Cold War, not a hot war anymore, but a kind of a quasi-Cold War, which is obviously not a very good thing. And what did the West do? The West has pushed Russia into the arms of China, which, which really is a, a serious, it, it starts changing the geopolitical map pretty seriously. So, so this, is, this has really been a rather, I, I think, ill-advised, position that's been taken by the West in general, and, and the sooner it can be brought to an end through diplomacy, the better, because war is really the enemy. <laughs> you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to be engaged in a war. And, and, and also, by the way, the, the U.S., by weaponizing with sanctions the financial, the international financial system, they, they've really created so many enemies now. The, the U.S. Is not, is not attracting friends and influencing people. They're they acting like what they are. They're a big imperial power that, that is making lots of enemies. So that's, that's the general overview at 30,000 feet there. But the, 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 the fiscal side, the economic side, 
is, is very serious because this adds to a very unsustainable, massive deficit in the United States. Well, it seems like the BRICS countries... Jesse, they're, they're, they're spending, as they say, they're, they're spending money in Washington like drunken sailors. They just, anything that comes up, any topic, just throw money at it, throw money at it, throw money at it. And that's why the, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office came up with a, a big numbers for the deficit, and they indicated it wasn't going to be sustainable. The debt to GDP is going up, 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 even with its Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Now I'm saying that that deficit in the next 12 months will probably be 50% higher than even the Congressional Budget Office number. And it's because of Bidenomics, the war in Ukraine, and interest on the debt. Well, I want to get your thoughts on the BRICS nations because they have been pushing back against America, basically bullying the world in the way that they have been. And there was a lot of chatter about the potential announcement of a gold-backed currency being announced at the BRICS summit recently. That announcement in particular never materialized although there were other significant developments as they welcomed more countries into the BRICS alliance. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Will we ever see a gold-backed BRICS currency in your view? And what what do you make of the summit and, and the new countries that have been invited to join? Well, the, the BRICS, uh, this, is, this is due to the war in Ukraine and sanctions by the U.S. And, and as a result of that, it, it's, 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 in enlarging a group that is that is morphed into an anti-American group, basically, and an anti-West, shall we say? But 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 America is. I know you're up there in Canada, but but America is the only thing that counts. They're the only one really financing the war in the Ukraine. If you look look at the big bucks going into it, and and they're the ones that run the show. So e either you run the show or the show runs you. And the imperial power is America and it's running the show in the West. Now, opposed to that has become all of a sudden we, we have Russia and China coming together and BRICS expanding. And the rhetoric coming out of BRICS is definitely anti-American, anti-sanctions, anti-American, de-dollarization. And this kind of notion that the BRICS would have their own currency. Now, they, they could. It's very difficult to challenge an international currency. Uh, if, if you go back 2,000 years, there have only been 13 international currencies, dominant international currencies. So they're, they, they stick around for a long time. They're hard to knock off the throne. But. The United States, with these sanctions and weaponizing the dollar, they have made it more vulnerable. They've they've opened a, a little window of vulnerability. Now, what what have the challenges been so far? Well, the challenges have been mainly coming from China. China wants to do bilateral trade in in the, in the renminbi. Uh, India wants to do bilateral trade now with the United Arab Emirates and the Indian rupee. 
it doesn't amount to much. In, India has a big trade deficit with the United Arab Emirates, but but who in the United Arab Emirates wants to settle that trade in rupee? Who who in the world wants an Indian rupee? So so it, it's it's all these bilateral trade that that's kind of peanuts. So so you get to the question you raise. Well, what about what about a gold-backed currency? Now that that could be actually a threat if it was done right. I I've proposed that what they should do is have a gold-backed currency board. In other words, they would issue, let's call it a brick. You issue a brick, and, and one brick is is worth so much gold at, at, at a fixed rate. And the brick would be backed 100% with gold reserves. So the brick would be as good as gold. And if you had a currency board, gold-backed system, and gold-backed currency, uh, it, it, it would be definitely, I think, a, a, a legitimate threat and challenge to the U.S. dollar. Whether they're going to do that or not, I, I don't know. We, we, we don't know. They've, they've been very vague about what they, what, what they've been, what they have up their sleeve. No one really knows what they have up their sleeve, except they, they, they mention the word gold and gold-backed currency, but we, we don't know the details. But if they did, as I'm proposing, a gold-backed currency board, it definitely would be a threat because there, there have been over 70 currency boards historically, and uh, none have ever failed. Uh, they, all, they all work because they're, they're very simple, <laughs> transparent entities that they issue a currency the currency trades at a fixed exchange rate with whatever the anchor currency happens to be, which could be gold. And the, the, the currency that's being issued is backed 100% with whatever the reserve currency is. So, so the issue currency is, is it's obviously by nature, by definition, as good as the reserve. Well, I want to talk about currency boards because you have designed and implemented them in several countries, including Bulgaria, I believe, in 1997 and others as well. So could you talk about exactly what a currency board is, the challenges that surround implementing it, and how they stabilize economies? Okay, so uh, I've been involved with establishing Actually, more currency boards, I think, than any if any any economist, certainly any living economist. One one was Estonia, nineteen ninety two. Now Estonia did didn't it was using the the Russian ruble at that time. It didn't have its own currency. And in May, I, I number one, I'd written a book about this, how to do it, the laying out the architecture. I did that with Kurt Schuler and Lars Yoning. We we wrote that the three of us. Uh, it was published in Stockholm, that book on Estonia in English and translated into Estonian and published in Tallinn, Estonia. So 
uh, uh, published in Tartu, actually, not Tallinn. So uh, in May, I, I went to Tallinn. I, I addressed what was still called the Supreme Soviet at the time. They were independent, newly independent. But I explained how, what a currency board was. They would issue, in their case, a kroon, a currency. It would be back 100% with Deutschmarks at the time and trade at a fixed exchange rate, kroon to Deutschmark. And, and in June, between June 20th and June 22nd, we installed the currency board. The Russian ruble was bit the dust in a hurry. Everything was stabilized. Uh, since, since then, uh, eventually, Estonia adopted the euro, which was easy, which was easy, easy to do because once the Deutschmark disappeared and was replaced with the euro, the kroon was linked to the euro uh, at a fixed exchange rate and backed with 100% reserve. So the, the transition to the euro euro was, was very easy to do. As you can see, the key thing here is there are no preconditions to setting up the currency board. You said, well, what are the problems? There aren't any problems. We did it in 30 days. 30 days after I made my presentation to the Supreme Soviet of Estonia, they, they installed the currency board. Then in 1994, I, I was a state counselor in Lithuania we did the same thing in Lithuania, no problem. The key thing, by the way, the key thing, and the thing that attracted Lithuania so much to the currency board is that the monetary authority, the currency board, can't loan money to the central government. And, that, and they, in other words, they have no discretionary monetary policy. They, they can't create credit. The, the only way the government of Lithuania or Estonia, for that matter, could could get local currency, more local currency, wouldn't be through credit because the currency board can't create credit. The only way they could get it is by taking foreign exchange in to the currency board and exchanging it for the, in the, in the case of Lithuania, the leaders. So they would have they would have had to take it was a dollar based system. They would have had to take U.S. dollars in to the currency board in exchange for leaders if they want if they wanted them. Then in 1997, of course, the famous Bulgarian case. I was the president Stoyanov's chief advisor, and Bulgaria was experiencing a hyperinflation at that time. It, it peaked out at 242 percent per month. Per month, we put in the currency board in July of 1997, and a year later, the foreign exchange reserves had tripled. the The interest rate had, had fallen; the, the base interest rate had fallen down to two percent in one in one year. So it smashed inflation immediately. They still have the, the currency board in Bulgaria, by the way. It works very well. Disciplines the the fiscal authorities very well because there is this hard budget constraint. The monetary authority can't loan money to the government. And then the, the last one that I was involved in establishing is in Bosnia-Herzegovina after the Civil War, also in 1997. So, so these things work like a charm. Right now, 
uh, I'm advising a presidential candidate in Venezuela, Roberto Enrique, and part of what he calls Plan Hanky includes a currency board. Right, right now, we've had 10 years of Maduro in power in Venezuela, and we've had two episodes of hyperinflation. That means an inflation rate that goes over 50% per month. And they have the second highest inflation in the world right now, a good, good triple digit inflation in Venezuela. So, so that, that's a possibility. I mean, if, if Enrique would happen to win the presidency, they would have a currency board in Venezuela. Inflation would be smashed. The Bolivar would be as good as the U.S. dollar. Well, Argentina at the moment is also facing an economic crisis with the peso having lost 91% of its value against the U.S. dollar in the last few years. And you said recently you've measured inflation there at 161%. How did this happen? Where do things go from there? It, from here, is Argentina another country that, that needs a currency board? Uh. Well, let me let me go back to uh, April of 1991. April of 1991, Argentina, uh, this, with Carlos Menem was the president then, and actually in 1989, I, I wrote a book with Kurt Schuller that was published in Buenos Aires, um, eventually published actually in 1991. But in 89... They had uh, a high, uh, hyperinflation. Uh, Menem had just been elected president, uh, asked for my advice. I told him I, they should put in a currency board to smash inflation and stabilize things. And he said, well, if you could write that up. So Schuler and I did. They, they put in in April actually something they called the convertibility system. It kind of looked like a currency board, but it wasn't because... It had a lot of discretionary power, which it used every month Every month of its life from 1991 to 2001 when the thing blew up, which I predicted it would blow up. Uh, it engaged in discretionary monetary policy, uh, and it was not a currency board. Now, you say, well, why did that happen? That, that happened for two reasons. One, the, the law of convertibility had lots of loopholes in it that allowed it to deviate from currency board principles. And, and then the second thing is that you have something called anime in Argentina. And that means that whatever the law is, the Argentines, they just ignore it. So, so at one at, at, at late in the game, they started even ignoring the convertibility law that had lots of loopholes in it, and and the thing bit the dust eventually. So that's why now I I am proposing uh, something that I actually did in Montenegro in 1999. That's replace the local currency with a foreign currency. They call it dollarization. I also was involved in doing that in Ecuador in 2000. They, they replaced the Supra with the U.S. dollar. In Montenegro, where I was, uh, Milo Djokanovic, the president of Montenegro's chief advisor, we replaced the what, what was then the 
high, highly inflating Yugoslav dinar with a German mark. So I, I'm proposing that's the best way. You, you put the central bank in Argentina and the peso, you mothball them, put them in a museum and replace them with the U.S. dollar. Now, it happens there is a, a candidate leading, leading the pack, actually, uh, Javier Malay, as proposed dollarization. So I, if he wins, the peso will be history. The U.S. dollar will be the coin of the realm in Argentina, and they'll they'll get rid of these currency crises. Visit Argentina, but with great regularity, and and so does inflation. And and you say, well, why why do they have so much inflation? <laughs> inflation right now. I mean, the money supply measured by M three is growing at ninety eight point eight percent per year. If they were to hit their inflation target of 5%, it, it should be growing at about 10.5% a year. So it's it's growing about nine times faster than it should if they wanted to hit their inflation target of 5%. You, you print too much money, print too many pesos, and you get a lot of inflation. It's a sim pretty simple game. How do you see the role of gold and silver developing up ahead. We spoke briefly about a potential gold-backed BRICS currency. Do you think gold will ever return to the monetary system um, in some form or another? What do you make of central banks accumulating gold? And um, your, your thoughts on silver as well, if you have any. Well, gold, uh, as Nobel laureate, my good friend, the, the late Robert Mundell said, gold, gold will always have a role in the international monetary system, and and it and it does now. The, your question is, well, is the role going to get bigger or smaller? <laughs> I think it's probably going to get bigger, <laughs> and 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 in a way, in a way that that's that's because of this reaction to the sanctions, financial sanctions that have been associated with the, the United States and 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 the European Union, by the way. But this, this weaponization of the dollar is, is opened the window a little bit for, uh, for, for gold. So, and, and it depends on really what, for example, what, what BRICS, for example, does. If they actually did a gold-backed currency board the way I propose to do it, that, that means, by the way, what? That my, my draft law for this, I've actually drafted up a law for it and everything else. And, and it would be housed in Switzerland. It would be governed by Swiss law. The reserves would be held in Switzerland. And the board of the currency board would be a five-member board. Only, only two of them, perhaps three maximum, would come from BRICS countries. The, the rest would be outside. For example, maybe one from Switzerland. Get a, get a get a good neutral country. So, if they if they would do that, uh, gold would become a, a lot bigger uh, in the picture. Fundamentally, the gold, central banks are buying gold. I think fundamentally, I, I'm pretty bullish on on gold uh, for that reason, among others. Uh, we're, I think we're headed into a recession in the United States, and gold gold's always a good bet in a recession. It, it, Europe 
by the way, thanks, thanks in part to their entanglement with the Ukraine war, uh, it, 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 it's starting to go into recession. I mean, Germany is, is in a recession. Sweden has just tipped into recession. And, and gold is, is always a good bet during a recession. And I think the U.S. will be in a recession next year. Silver is something, Jesse, I, I, don't, I don't follow too carefully, so I don't really have any great thoughts about that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. It's been an extraordinarily enlightening conversation. Before I do let you go, could you tell us about your work at the Independent Institute, the National Review, and uh, anywhere else you want to direct people online, feel free. Well, uh, I think the best place is just go to the Independent Institute uh, website and you know, plug in my name, and they have, they have an archive of my writings there that that's the best archive if if somebody actually want as a question or they want to contact me directly they can do so just write hanky at jhu.edu or obviously follow follow me on twitter uh and that's at steve underscore hanky h-a-n-k-e so if you could maybe put those uh the hook for uh, the Twitter up. People can easily follow on Twitter. And, and, and right now, Focus Economics does rank me as the third most influential economist in the world. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's a Twitter following of, of some, uh, uh, where are we at today? Uh, let, me, let me just check. I haven't, really haven't looked at things today. Uh, uh, six hundred, uh, about six hundred and sixty-one thousand followers. So we get have a have a good following. Great. Well, let's get you up to seven hundred thousand. I'll put a link to your Twitter in the description below, um, as well as the Independent Institute link that you mentioned. Thank you once again, Steve, for joining us today and sharing your knowledge with the audience. Thank you, Jesse. Great to be with you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.